Well, we're continuing here in our series in Hebrews and, uh, and continuing too in, in uh, chapter 11, which is kind of a seamless thought, and we're breaking it up into a couple of messages. If you were with us last week, we were studying the first few verses. We did verses 1 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is talking to us about what faith looks like. And the reason he's doing that, not only just talking about what, what is faith, but then giving us some real practical illustrations of faith lived out by giving us some of these names... The reason he's doing it is that at the end of chapter 10, he'd made sort of a profound statement. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, maybe you remember. But at the end of chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews says, we, that's us, we are not of those who shrink back and perish. We are those of faith. We are of those who remain faithful and preserve their souls. That's the last verse of chapter 10. We are of those who remain faithful and preserve or retain their souls. He says, we're not in the company of those who know something about God, who saw him work, who maybe tasted something of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that again and again in the book of Hebrews, that there are these who kind of have an understanding of who God is, and yet they haven't coupled that understanding with action. They haven't coupled it with faith, and therefore it's meaningless to them. So the writer of the Hebrews says, that's not who we are. We're not of those who shrink away when things are hard and perish. We are of those who are faithful. And then he goes in, in chapter 11, to give us a list. Last week, we looked at three quick examples. We looked at the examples of Abel, who brought God the first and the best of all that he had. We talked about the example of Enoch last week, who walked with God and was taken. Uh, We also talked about the example of Noah, who even though he'd never seen a rainstorm, and even though he didn't really understand what an ark was, he followed God. God's directions explicitly and built this ark and was faithful in doing so because of who God was. We saw those three examples. Now the writer's continuing this, uh, you know, some people have called it a, a hallmark of faith. Some people have called it a portrait gallery of faith. It's all of these practical examples of people who have had faith and been obedient. He continues that now by talking about some new characters. And this isn't even all. We'll finish chapter 11 next week. But in the text we're looking at today, he talks about a guy named Abraham, who's the father of Israel, basic, basically the, one of the heroes of our faith. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Sarah, Abraham's wife. He talks about Isaac, Abraham's son. He talks about Jacob. That's Isaac's son. He also talks about Joseph, and he gives examples of the things these men and women did because of their faith. Now, for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to go into all of these stories, but for some of you who maybe aren't familiar with the stories, I am going to give you the references in the Old Testament so that you can go back, and I know you don't really want homework today, but it would be worth it for you to go back and read these stories in the text because they are incredible. So the first story he gives us, or the first example he gives us in verse 11, the section we're studying today, excuse me, verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You can find that story in greater detail in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to write that down, you can look at it later. But God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I want you to leave your family, leave everything you know, leave the comfortable confines of your home. I want you to pack up your stuff and go. But he doesn't tell him where he's going. He says, I want you to get up and go to a place I will show you when we get there, right? Now, that's not the way you and I like to do things, right? You you want me to go someplace, you're gonna have to pitch me what it is I'm going to before I'm ever gonna buy my flights. You know what I mean? I don't mind ordering flights, but you gotta tell me whether the beaches are warm and whether or not they're gonna have, you know, decent meal deals or whatever. Otherwise, I'm not planning my trip. We wanna have everything locked out on a GPS. But that isn't what God says. God says, get your stuff and go and I'll show you when we get there. And Genesis 12 says that's exactly what Abram does. He packs up, he leaves the the comfortability of his home, he leaves the safe surroundings of everything he's known, and he goes in faith. Not only that, 
It says here, by faith, verse 9, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, those are his son and grandson, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He gives us another example of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you want to read more about their sojourn, you can read about that in Genesis 13, like 13 through 25. But the idea here is that God calls them to this place, and they don't actually, they're not actually given the land immediately, right? God says, this is, this is the land you will occupy. It's the land you will dwell in. But at the time that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived there, they were nomadic. They were sojourners and strangers by their own admission. In fact, when Jacob talks to the leadership in, uh, in Egypt at the end of his life, he says, the days of my life have been full of evil. I've been wandering my whole life. The writer here to the Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, they lived in tents. They didn't have a place of their own, but they were looking forward to a city created by God. They lived in tents. Not only that, next it's going to talk about Sarah and Abraham. It says in verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You can read more about this in Genesis 18, 19, 20, and 21. But God, in the midst of his promise to Abraham, says, listen, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be my guy. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to multiply you. And you're going to have so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them. And at the time, Abraham goes, yeah, right. Like, I'm an old man. My wife's an old lady. We're not having any kids, probably. We're definitely not having so many, you can't count them. And God says, watch me, right? About 25 years later, they wait. God makes the promise. Another 25 years later, God finally comes and meets with Abraham and Sarah. And he says to them, okay, the time has come. Your wife's going to have this baby. And when he says it, the Bible tells us that Sarah actually, she kind of laughed, right? Because she didn't believe it. She's an old lady past the time of having kids. And you'll read in the text, God looks at her and he goes, did you just laugh? And she's like, no, I didn't laugh. And he goes, yes, you did laugh. And I I like that because... You know, it just shows you can't, you can't slip anything past God. He kind of sees it all coming, right? God gives them their son, Isaac, even in the lateness of their age. He does it through a miracle. He provides. They are faithful because they believe that he who promised is faithful. If you jump down to verse 17, it talks about Abraham again. You can read this story about Abraham's offering up of Isaac in Genesis 22, but here's what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That's his son, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, you know your son Isaac, the one you waited all those years for, the child through whom the promise of multiple descendants is going to come? I want you to take that son, your only son, and I want you to take him to the place where you routinely make your sacrifices, and I want you to offer him there to me. I want you to kill him for my glory. And Abraham takes his son Isaac and he binds him. He leads them to the place they normally make their sacrifices. In fact, it's an emotional story in Genesis 22 because Isaac had been on that trail before. He looks at his father and he says, Dad, uh, you know, we got the wood and we got the fire for the offering, but you know what? We, uh, we forgot to bring the animal for the sacrifice. And Abraham, I imagine with tear-filled eyes, has to look at his son and say, uh, God himself will provide a sacrifice. 
And he takes his son and he lays him on the altar and he raises the knife to slay him. And when you think about this, don't just think about somebody who's getting ready to take the life of his own son in obedience to God, but recognize that in the, in the slaying of Isaac, Abraham loses everything. He not only loses the life of his son, but he also loses the respect of all of his, all of his kinsmen and all the people in the surrounding areas. He loses the relationship with his family and his wife. Can you imagine that conversation when he comes home from the trip, right? His wife's like, oh, I'm so glad you're back from the sacrifice. Where's Isaac? And he goes, oh, I murdered him because God told me to. I don't know what your marriage is like. I don't know that my marriage would survive that particular talk, right? He comes back. He raises the knife to slay his son. And when he does that, he's not just, he's not just losing a son. He's losing the very promise of God. Isaac is the one that promise would come through. But what Hebrews 11 tells us is that Abraham believed that God, who made the promise, believed that God who gave him Isaac was also capable of raising him from the dead. We don't read that in Genesis 22. We get inside, insight into the motivation or the purposes of Abraham's heart here in Hebrews chapter 11 that he was confident that God is so faithful that even if he allowed Isaac to die on the altar, that God is so faithful to his promise that he would just raise Isaac from the dead and keep his promise. It talks about the faithfulness of Abraham. It talks about the faithfulness of Sarah. It talks about the faithfulness of Isaac and Jacob in verses 20 and 21. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He blessed his sons despite the fact that both of his sons were kind of knuckleheads. You know what I'm saying? Like Esau is like this kind of wild, it says it's very hairy for some reason. You don't want that written in the Bible about you. But uh, Esau, and he, he trades in his inheritance for a bowl of stew. That sounds like an idiot to me, Right? And Jacob's not much better. Jacob is a guy who, who got, received the blessing, but he got it because he was a liar and a cheat and a fake and a swindler. It's a terrible husband down the road, right? And yet Isaac blessed them because of his faith and his confidence in who God was. Later, Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph in Egypt. Joseph brings his infant sons that were born in Egypt to Jacob's knee. And Jacob, when he goes to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, those are Joseph's sons. You can read about this more, by the way, if you want to, in uh, Genesis 47 and 48. Jacob crosses his arms and puts his right hand on the younger son. And Joseph goes, "Uh, Dad, that's not how you do it. You put your right hand on the older son. And, And Jacob basically goes, no, this is how I'm doing it, right? And he blesses the younger over the, over the older, which wasn't the tradition. But again, it said something about Jacob's faith. In God's fulfillment of the promise. Not only that, but if you can read in Genesis chapter 50 that when Joseph was old and he was about to die, he looked at the Israelites there in Egypt and said, we aren't always going to be in Egypt. This isn't the place that God prepared for us. He will lead us out as he promised my great grandfather and as he promised my father. He will lead us out and when he does, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Take them out and bury me in the land of promise. And that was a demonstration of Joseph's faith. Listen, we moved through it really quick, but what we're seeing here is just more of people doing what they know is right because of their faith in God. We get the what? We get what they did. There were these faithful actions. We're in the company of people who performed faithful actions, and we know how they did it. Because in each one of these characteristics, it also tells us that they did what they did by faith. So we know what they did, they were faithful in acting, and we know how they did it, they did it by faith, but what it doesn't necessarily tell you right at the beginning, and what you have to kind of look a little closer to understand is the question that I think is actually most important, and that is why? Why did they do it? We, we get that they had faith, and that's how they did it, we get what they did, but why? The why is the most important answer, it's the most important question to ask. And we get the answer to that question here in this middle section that we jumped over. Look at verses 13 through 16. 
Think about it with me. It says, these all, that's talking about everybody from Enoch and Abel, it's talking about Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, all of them. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now at first you read that and you go, what? God made them these promises and they were faithful to obey him and they never even got what they were promised? They died not receiving the promise? Like that seems like... Such a tragedy, such a tragic story. I, uh, I took my sons to see that movie Everest. Have you seen that movie Everest? Uh, it was out like a few, it's been a little while since it was out. It was on the IMAX and they, they painted this picture of it being like this incredible adventure story. So there was this night where my wife and my daughter were doing their own thing and I had this, the boys with me and I said, okay guys, we're gonna go and we're gonna see this mountain climber movie. It's called Everest. It's on the big screen, you know, at the IMAX and so we go and I got them all pumped up. I'm like, it's gonna be this incredible adventure movie and we went and saw that movie. I don't know if you've seen, sorry, here's a spoiler alert, but basically everybody dies in that movie, right? There's like one dude who doesn't die and his nose breaks off and his eyes quit working. Like he's a train wreck after the thing's done, no offense. But my kids, we go see this movie and we get done with it and my kids are like, why did you make us watch that terrible movie? And I'm like, well, but those guys were like, you know, it's so inspiring. And they're like, it's not inspiring. The guy made it to the top of the mountain and he curled up in a fetal position and turned into a popsicle, right? <laughs> like, that's not an inspirational movie. These are guys who like somewhere along the line made the wrong choice, right? And you might look at the, I mean, no offense to their families and whatever, these guys were incredibly courageous, but you look at it and go, why did they do that? We know what they did. And we know how they did it. They had all the right gear. They had all, all the right information. But why would you go up to a mountain and then die there? Like, why do it? And, and I guess maybe the answer would be, well, to demonstrate something of the indomitable spirit of human beings, you know, or like to prove that we could or what. But like, why, you know? Like, who cares about, I, don't, I just don't care enough about proving that point to become a popsicle on the top of a mountain, Right? To me, it seems like an exercise in futility, and that's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, in talking about the resurrection, in talking about the resurrection, there were people who were saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and that there was no resurrection from the dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Like what are we doing here if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? If he's not alive, then we are pitiable. But he says at the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, talking about the fact that he is alive, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, because Jesus is risen. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that all of these faithful people who had the what and had, and had the how, by faith, they did all these faithful things that they died without ever receiving the promise. And I, I think that sort, of, that sort of bothers some of us, right? Because we've sort of been trained to believe that this whole thing, this whole religious system, Christianity, is all about getting what we, what we want from God, right? You kind of think of it in terms of like, uh, like the trainers at SeaWorld, right? They've got that little pouch on their belt with the little fish in it or whatever. And the way it works at SeaWorld is, is that when you, know, when you can get the killer whale to like jump through the hoop or do a backflip or balance a thing on his nose or whatever, that when... when when the whale does what it's supposed to do, you take a fish out and you go, 
good whale, right? And you'd give it a little treat for what it's done because it did what you told it to do. I think many of us think about our relationship with God in that way and we think, okay, God, I want you to make me happy. I want you to give me a good job. I want you to help me find a great spouse. I want my family always to be healthy. I want to have plenty of money in my bank account. And as long as you do the things I'm telling you to do, then I'll give you a little fish of praise or I'll give you a little fish of worship or I'll give you a little, wor- a little fish of sacrifice and service. I'll, I'll give you some of my time or my money or my effort or my talent, but you gotta do what I'm asking you to do. So when we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that these died without receiving the thing they were promised, you go, well, that better not be how it goes for me because God's going to need to do what I'm telling him to do. I better get what I've been promised because we think of this as this sort of capitalistic exchange. It's funny, even inside, like, even inside church theory, and you probably don't care about church theory, but I have to listen to a lot of people talk church theory, and they'll say this thing where they'll go, oh, if you want the people in your church to give financially, you gotta constantly be telling them stories of all the good things that God is doing. And when they see that God is doing good things, then they'll be motivated to give of their tithes and their, their money and their effort. And I, I, I gotta tell you, I hate that, right? Because we don't give money to God because he's done what we like or because he's done something that we want him to do. We give to God out of the overflow of what he's given to us because he's God and that's it. And the moment that we start to, the the moment that we start to go, well, as long as God is doing neat things that I can see and that I can taste and I can touch, what happens in those moments where you can't see it and you can't taste it and you can't touch it? Then you stop following God. When it doesn't feel good, if you've been training yourself to follow Jesus because you're getting what you want, then when you don't get what you want, you will quit following him. But there's a better way. There's a better why. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, back to Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We know what they did, and we know how they did it. They did all kinds of faithful things, and they did them by faith. But the why is this. They were hungry for something bigger and better and more beautiful than what was right in front of their faces. They were hungry for a city built by God, the foundations of which were laid by God, that he built himself. They were hungry for the kingdom of God to come, the very same thing that Jesus himself prays, right? When he says, the kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's it's all about what they're hungry for. These people, look at that text. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Enoch, Abel, Noah. They were hungry for something beyond the thing right in front of their face. It says they were seeking a better country. They saw themselves as strangers and exiles in the land in which they were. And they were longing for something that they had been promised. They were looking forward to. They were seeking. They were seeking their inheritance. They were hungry for it. Let me ask you this this morning, church. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Because because at the end of the day, you can know all kinds of things about God. 
You can know all kinds of things about practical Christian living, right? You can have read all kinds of Christian books. You can know all the right details and still not follow him because you're hungry for the wrong things. I know that cookies are bad for me, right? I, I know it. I know it from a scientific standpoint. I've seen the data. I've watched the documentaries on Netflix and been appalled, right? I know that sugar and salt and fat is really bad for me. I get that. And I also know that doctors have said I will be healthier if I don't eat those things. But you know what? I still eat those things even though I know they're not good for me. And you want to know why? I'm hungry for them. And my hunger for those terrible things neutralizes what I know. I think there are a lot of people who know about God. They know his expectation. They know what faithful people before them have done. And practically, they're still not living a life of faithfulness. And it's because they're hungry for the wrong things. Many of you in this place are trying to make decisions today about your careers, or you're trying to make decisions about your your love life, or who you're going to marry, or if you're going to get married, or if you're going to stay in that marriage. Some of you are trying to make decisions about what to do with your investments, or what to do with your vacation time, or what to do with your kids, or what not to do with your kids, right? You're trying to sort through these things, and can I tell you, if you're hungry for the wrong stuff, you cannot answer those questions right. Your questions will be wrong. Your answers will be wrong if you're hungry for the wrong things. That's why when Jesus is calling the disciples in John chapter one, he looks at the disciples and says, what are you seeking? That word seeking could be translated desirous of, or what are you hungry for? In John chapter six, after he's fed the 5,000, right? After Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes, there's this whole crowd of people that are following him around. And in fact, he goes to the other side of the water and the crowd follows him there. And when they get there in John six, they go, Jesus, what are you doing over here? We didn't ever see you leave. And Jesus goes, you guys, you're not following me because you care about me. You're following me because you had the loaves and the fish, you had your stomachs filled up and you want another free lunch, right? And they're like, no, no, well, you know, maybe, what, like, maybe, what are the signs of God? You know, our forefathers were given manna by God, maybe you should give us manna. And Jesus is like, you don't need manna, and you don't need loaves and fishes. I, he says in John 6, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And then they get mad, and they're like, he's telling us he's the bread of life, all we wanted was a sandwich, and he won't give us one, you know? And that's when Jesus transitions in John 6 and says, If you want to be my disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, okay, buddy, too far, right? And a bunch of them walk away. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Because that's the, it's not, it's not about what you know. It's not even about what you do. The most important question is, what are you hungry for? That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, Why are you worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear and where you're going to go? Oh, the, the pagans worry about those things. But your Father in heaven knows what you need and he will provide them for you. Seek first. Desire first. Be most hungry for, Jesus says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff will be taken care of. What are you hungry for, church? Jesus looks at his disciples in John 6 after all these other people have walked away and he says, what about you? You gonna, you gonna walk away too? And his disciples, their answer is awesome. They go, where would we go? You have the words of life. What are they hungry for? Life. Life, the promises of God. They're not hungry for loaves and fish. They're not hungry for manna. They're hungry for 
for the kingdom of God. These all, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Enoch, Abel, all of them, they died not having received the things promised, but having seen them. They were hungry for the future of what would happen, seen and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Have you seen Christians or people who profess to be Christians who walk away from the faith? He'll go, yeah, yeah, I went to church as a kid. I went to church until I was a high school student or college student or whatever, and I decided it's not really for me. You know why people walk away? They go back to their homeland because they're hungry for the wrong things. He says, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, all of them, they could have gone back. They didn't. Why? Because they were looking forward to something greater than what they'd left behind. Because they were looking forward to the kingdom and the promises of God. Are you hungry for those things today? You see, whatever decision it is that you're trying to make, whether it's about your job or about your love life or about your family or about your whatever, whatever decision it is you're trying to make, the first question you have to ask is what are you hungry for? Because if you're hungry for the glory of God, if you're hungry for his kingdom to come, if you're hungry for Christ himself, the presence of Christ in your life, all the answers that you come to will be the right ones. They'll all be the right answers because of what you were desirous of. I love the fact then at 16, verse 16, it says, this is so cool. It says, uh, verse 16 of Hebrews 11, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, let that soak in for just a second. God is not ashamed to be called their God. We talk uh, all the time, and there are lots of places in the Bible that say, don't be ashamed of God. You, you and I should not be ashamed of God. Jesus says, if you will, you know, account, if, if you will give account of me in front of the world, I will stand up and be an advocate for you in front of my Father, right? Don't deny me. Don't ignore We talk all the time about claiming that God is our God. But what's interesting in this text is it says that God is not ashamed to call these people his people. That's cool. May, I made the hair on my arm stand up again, right? I love the fact that it, in Exodus 3, in Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, you know that text? In Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, and Moses says, uh, who are you? Like, what, do I, what am I going to tell people? And they asked me, I was talking about a fire in a bush. God says, you know who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. <laughs> How cool would it be to have God identify himself as your God? That you've lived not not just knowing the right things, not just having the faith, not just understanding God's expectation, but hungry for the right things in such a way that God would say, me? Oh, I'm, I'm the God of John Baker, right? Oh, I'm the God of Darren McWaters, right? Me? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How cool to have God identify himself as ours. And that's the result of this faithfulness. It isn't just the what and the how. Yes, they did some incredible things by faith, but they did those incredible things by faith because they were desirous, because they were seeking, because they were hungry for more of God, for the fulfillment of his promises. What are we hungry for today? What are we hungry for? That's the question. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us 
an insatiable hunger for your kingdom. A hunger that drives us to the place where we are faithful in being obedient, in coupling our our knowledge of you with action, not because of what we get from you, but because of who you are. And that whether we receive the promises that you've made in our lifetime, or if those promises are meant to be fulfilled long beyond our life, that we are happy still, that we are comfortable and, and, and confident still, that you are God, and that your purposes are more important than ours. Help us to be hungry for your will to be done. Help us to be hungry for your goodness and your love to be spread. Help us to be hungry for your kingdom. Come to earth. We think about guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, women like Sarah and their faithfulness. We think about Billy Graham, the great evangelist who's with you today. We think about his faithfulness over the years and we absolutely are confident in recognizing that you would add his name to a list like this of those that you are not ashamed to call your people, that you are the God of Billy Graham. We praise you for his ministry. We recognize your hand upon him and we pray, God, that you would continue to draw our country and our world to yourself through evangelists and and regular people like him. God, help us to be hungry, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.